0: DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: So are you all wide awake out there after uh, many of you stayed up till uh, the early hours of the morning watching the University of Georgia win the National Football Championship? I bet there are an awful lot of you out there who were celebrating until to the wee hours of this morning. Uh, I want to give in a particular shout out to uh, people who might be listening to us down in Blackshear, which is a community just a little bit northeast of uh, Waycross, and of course is where Stetson Bennett IV uh, grew up town of 3,500 people. He was the MVP of last night's game, and he's kind of a fairy tale story. guy who was initially a walk-on quarterback at the University of Georgia, whose uh, skills were questioned throughout much of this season, uh, but who last night uh, absolutely came through and gave the Georgia Bulldogs their first national championship since 1980. And while we're giving shout-outs to South Georgia, Kirby Smart, Grew up over in Bainbridge, which is just above the Florida uh, border, and uh, that's a community of only 14,000 people. So uh, we send our best out to all of you. Uh, today, we're going to turn our attention to another story that's going to put Georgia in the national spotlight, and that's a visit of President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. We'll start talking about that. They're here, of course, to talk about voting rights They're getting some pushback from from some voting rights groups, and we'll cover all that on the show today with our panel, starting with Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who joins us every Tuesday on the show. Hi, Tamar. Thanks for being here today.
0: Thanks so much, Bill.
1: Um, We're also joined today by the mayor of Augusta, Georgia, Mayor Hardy Davis, who has been, I think, uh, Mayor Davis, you've been in office now going into seven years. You, you were first elected, I think, in 2015. You also served in both the State House and the State Senate. So you have a wealth of experience as an elected leader in Georgia. Thanks for being here.
2: Bill, it's great to be here with uh, the team once again, and uh, I am in my final year as mayor of the city of Augusta, mm-hmm. Georgia.
1: Did you want to tell us what your political uh, ambitions are for the future as long as you're on today, uh, Mayor Davis?
2: I'm I'm not sure I have any political ambitions. I think I want to have some uh, life ambitions, and that is to uh, finish wrong, uh, end well, and uh, make sure that Augusta's in better shape than she's ever been in. Uh, And I think we've done that uh, as a team collaboratively, uh, you know, budget surpluses each year. Uh, We've done that without uh, raising taxes. Uh, we've done all of the things that you want to uh, do as a leader. So I feel good about well, where we are. We're I, finished out strong.
1: I am always grateful that you accept our invitations uh, to do the show. And uh, you're joining today a former uh, legislative friend, Edward Lindsay, who served in the state house from the city of Atlanta uh, for a number of years. Now, of course, he heads the Georgia Government Affairs Group for Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Thanks for being here, Edward.
3: It's always great to be here, especially the day after a uh, glorious
1: Bulldog win. Did you stay up for the whole thing last night?
3: (laughs) I not only stayed up for it, but I accepted the call from my two sons at about 2.30 in the morning who had traveled up to Indianapolis just to make sure that I knew what the final score was. I took the call just to make sure that they were not asking for bail money, and I was
1: glad to see they were not (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you for being here after a, a few hours of sleep. Amy Steigerwald, political science professor at George State University, is with us as well. How are you today, Amy?
4: I am great, and I imagine my little brother, who is a, UG, a proud UGA grad, is uh, kind of exuberant if he's awake yet because he actually was able to go up for the game. So,
1: Well, uh, again, thanks for uh, joining us for the show. All right. Uh, Tomorrow, so uh, President Biden, Vice President Harris, will be here today. Uh, They're uh, going to uh, visit the—they're going to stop and make a visit to uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church. They'll be with uh, Raphael Warnock, Senator Warnock, of course, senior pastor at uh, Ebenezer Baptist. And they're going to then pay their respects at the uh, King uh, tomb just down the street from— the church, and then he'll be making a speech in which tomorrow we expect, according to the New York Times, he is going to announce that he will support an end, a carve-out that will stop the filibuster from blocking two voting rights bills that have been passed by the House and are stalled in the Senate. That is a big change for the president to say he will support Uh, an end to the filibuster, so these two bills can come to the floor for debate and possible passage. Right, Tamar?
0: Absolutely. This is a man who spent his entire adult life, more or less, in the U.S. Senate almost four decades, and he was kind of the ultimate institutionalist when it came to kind of representing the Senate, what it represents, the kind of image that it has when it comes to civic discussions and that sort of thing. Um, What he's going to be proposing is not completely eliminating the the filibuster. Like you said, it's being described by the White House as a carve out, uh, you know, just doing with with issues like voting rights or what Democrats consider issues vital to democracy. Um, the, the problem of course, is that he comes here without a real plan in place when it comes to winning over, uh, two of his biggest critics in his own caucus, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who've been very vocal about not wanting to do anything, uh, to make any changes to the Senator Senate rules without any sort of buy-in from Republicans. So it's really unclear what he's going to be able to really do at this point. You know, he doesn't have a ton of political capital after um, negotiations with Senator Manchin ground to a halt on his big social spending bill. Um, this is, of course, another massive priority of his where it doesn't seem like he's been getting much traction. Um, so, really, it seems like using Atlanta, the symbolism of MLK, um, kind of the cradle of the civil rights movement, to try and convince Joe Manchin, really. Um, to change his mind, and it's unclear, really, if it's going to work, and and I might bet against it as somebody who's watched Joe Manchin for for many years.
1: Um, uh, let's let's point out that when the White House announced this visit, the uh, uh, Cedric Richmond, who is the White House senior advisor. Uh, and director of the Office of Public Engagement, said, quote, we are doubling down, kicking it into another gear. We're going right to the belly of the beast or ground zero for voter suppression, voter subversion and obstruction, talking about Georgia. Uh, Edward, you wanted to jump in on this.
3: No, the only thing I wanted to add to this is just not simply uh, Senator Sinema and Manchin. There are other senators on the Democratic side who have expressed reservations, if not downright opposition, to getting rid of the filibuster in the past. Uh, they include uh, Senator Tester, uh, Senator Sheehan, uh, the new senator from uh, Nevada, uh, as well as uh, folks like Senator Kelly uh, from Arizona, who faces a re-election this year in a tough swing state. So there are a number of senators uh, that, uh, Democratic senators, who've also expressed reservations about getting rid of the filibuster. So it's going to be interesting to see if indeed the president has laid the groundwork uh, for this because one of the worst things that he could do is come down, make a grand pronouncement as to his desire to over, over, uh, to, to carve out an exception to the filibuster and not have the votes. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see uh, if indeed he's done uh, his necessary behind-the-scenes uh, groundwork before he's, he's come and make this pronouncement.
1: Mayor Davis?
2: Yeah, I agree with uh, uh, our panelists, uh, but I would would counter it with the following things. Uh, One, this is an opportunity for the majority whip to do his or her job, uh, and that is to make sure that they're bringing the folks along necessary to get this vote passed. Uh, We shouldn't put this at the feet of President Biden. He's the president, and he's certainly uh, wanting to see this legislation move forward, knowing how important it is. With a lack of elections standards, voting rights standards across this country, I mean, in all 50 states, we know for a fact that there are some 19 or 20 plus states that have enacted uh, voting laws just in this most recent legislative session. I think the president's message to the nation should really be focused on that issue, standardization from a voting rights standpoint, access to the ballot. When you think about, again, all 50 states, there are similarities, but key differences. Uh, And to the degree that we can have uh, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Act being teed up and ultimately get it to a place where we're able to vote on it, uh, when you think about standardization around early voting, uh, mail-in voting, when you think about Election Day as a holiday, uh, cracking down on deceptive and intimidating practices. uh, But more than anything, Uh, modernizing voter registration across this country so that there is a standard. That's the message that I'd like to see the president uh, really amplify as opposed to uh, spending too much time on the notion of a filibuster. Uh, Again, I go back to the majority whip. Uh, If this were Mitch McConnell, this would already have happened. Uh, And I'm a little disappointed from a Democratic standpoint uh, that there's not that push, that urge and that horsepower uh, to whip folks in. Uh, into into uh, accordance with this uh, to make sure that we have an opportunity to vote on it. if it fails that's fine but at least get it to a point of being voted on.
1: Amy uh, uh, echoing what Hardy Davis is saying there are voting rights groups minority voting rights groups primarily who are boycotting President Biden today, Black Voters Matter being the most prominent of them, really, uh, but others as well, saying exactly what Hardy Davis is saying, which is, please, uh, Mr. President, don't just come here to have a symbolic photo op at the tomb of Martin Luther King Jr. uh, Do something about this. And it is particularly noteworthy that Stacey Abrams, Amy, once thought to be a possible vice presidential running mate for Joe Biden, her campaign says she's got a conflict, won't be able to be with him, but they haven't told us what that conflict is. Amy?
4: So I'm going to be the annoying pedantic scholar. There is no filibuster. (laughs) There is no filibuster. There's holds. People have said, I will object to a unanimous consent if it is brought to the floor. And Schumer has said, Okay, the majority leader, because he controls the floor time. A filibuster means that you have debate, you control the floor, and you refuse to give it up. And partly the reason that that is so important is, number one, the majority leader doesn't want to have to waste the floor time on it. But number two, historically, there has never actually been a successful filibuster of a bill, a true filibuster. What we have right now are not filibusters. They're threats. There are threats to tie up the Senate. their are threats to use these parliamentary procedures. And that threat, ironically, is having much more power and effect on the types of legislations that are being discussed and what's being debated than an actual filibuster. So when we say we're going to get rid of the filibuster, there hasn't been a filibuster. And that is really kind of bizarre. And so I think what could be there, I think the other side of it is that right? Biden is in a bind in the sense that as president, he can't do anything. He can call for the Senate to bring the bill to the floor. He can call for them to have a vote, but he doesn't have any power, right? This is why we separate out Article One and Article Two in the Constitution, and that's good, right, that the president can't override and tell Congress sort of how to do it and change their rules. But I do think it's really important that we be cognizant that We have entered a realm, especially post-1970, where the majority leaders give in to threats in ways that are really kind of striking. And so we're not having a debate about a filibuster. There has not been truly a filibuster since the 1990s. And instead, it's that we're sort of stuck there. And so that's, I think, a really important component of this debate.
2: I couldn't agree Tomorrow. more uh, with uh, Amy. Oh, I'm go sorry. Ahead. Yeah. No, uh, no, I go agree ahead, more with, uh, Amy. Uh, that's why I say this is not, uh, we, we can impugn the president, but I think it's, it's it's futile to do that. This is the majority leader. This is the majority whip. Those are the ones whose responsibility it is to get this to a place of debate, uh, and not the president. The president's message is to unify, to bring this country together around the importance. From a voting rights standpoint and a freedom to vote perspective, that's what I want to see. And so while I think that there are complications associated with that, again, go to the folks, as uh, Ed said, uh, who are couching and don't want to have the debate. And it's not just Mansion and Cinema.
0: Um, I mean, Democrats, Chuck Schumer, um, the, the majority whip, Dick, Dick Durbin are in a tough spot. I'm sure they have been whipping the heck out of this bill. Um, the issue is that, of course, their base is demanding action on this issue, especially after state legislatures in places like Georgia and Arizona have been passing all these new voting laws. Um, so they're being screamed at to to do something. But but frankly, they're they've kind of reached this intractable place where they haven't been making progress with with cinema, with Manchin, with some of the other people that that Edward mentioned. And so I think now you're just seeing kind of some some last desperate moves to try and show their voters that they're doing something, even if they are stuck. Senator Schumer has promised to bring the measure to the floor, uh, I believe by Martin Luther King Day. So in the next week or so, um, of course, at this point, it looks like it's going to be defeated. Um, there are some talks, however, you know, you're hearing Joe Manchin talking about review visiting this uh, obscure law from the late 1800s called the Electoral Count Act. That's something that Mitch McConnell has suggested he might be open to after a lot of the drama with certifying the election uh, on January 6th last year. Um, so maybe there'll be some movement on that. Uh, but it, it's going to be tinkering around the edges. It's not going to be this whole-scale change that a lot of the the more activist members of the Democratic Party are really hoping to see. Edward? Uh, yeah,
3: uh, yeah, excuse me. To build on um, he was saying, uh, what Senator Tester uh, is recommending is exactly uh, along the lines of what Amy was discussing, in which he would like to abolish this hold idea and require you to actually stand up and, <laughs> and, and do uh, what Jimmy Stewart did in uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, that classic 1930s uh, movie. Uh, and do away with uh, the, these holds uh, that are taking place uh, that prevent even the debate from, from occurring. So that's that is something that not only Senator Tester, but a couple of the other folks that I mentioned earlier, who are opposed to flat out uh, getting rid of, of this whole concept of uh, of a uh, filibuster for election laws, uh, but instead wanted require there be a, a, a talking actually a talking filibuster. Along
1: the lines of what Amy was discussing. Okay. Uh, uh, Tamara and Amy, particularly, uh, I want to make sure I understand something here. And I want to make sure our listeners understand what you're all saying. How many votes would it require to bring both the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Bill and the Freedom to Vote Act? And I'm going to explain at some point in the show what each of those requires. How many votes would it take? To bring those measures to the floor of the Senate for debate tomorrow.
0: Oh goodness, um, I believe. Is it a simple majority?
1: 60. It does require sixty votes. No,
0: Amy, do you have? I believe have it's sixty votes clear... to cut off debate. They it's might be able too, to bring it okay. to the floor, but 60 to cut off debate. But Amy knows better than I do, and I might- be Well, able to... so any motion in the Senate requires- that The way that the, the rules exist now is
4: that to do anything, you need unanimous consent. And generally speaking, unanimous consent is just given. It means that everybody agrees and nobody really pays attention, and that's what they do to move to a new bill on the floor in order to move to vote, et cetera. What is going on here is that if someone objects do that unanimous consent. Now you move into the realm where if that person wants to say nope, I object, they now are supposed to control the floor and the only way to be able to end the uh sort of move past their blockage is that you have that 60 vote threshold and when 60 people agree on it. Okay.
1: Okay, I just wanted to establish that because it's nevertheless whatever you call it, whether it's a filibuster formally or not, <clears throat> Republicans are blocking <clears throat> excuse me, both of these measures passed in the House from moving forward. And let me very briefly, because I've had a number of listeners ask me about this, uh, describe just simply what these bills do. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act is really very straightforward and, and is primarily concerned with restoring some form of preclearance by the Department of Justice in certain cases— where states have made changes to their election laws, the Department of Justice has to look at those changes and decide whether or not they have treated minority uh, citizens uh, of a state unfairly in a discriminatory way or not. The Supreme Court, of course, eliminated preclearance a number of years ago. Now Congress would have to put it back in place in a form that uh, might be uh, uh, more acceptable and, and constitutional. The Freedom to Vote Act is much more robust. It makes it easier to register to vote, makes Election Day a public holiday, ensures states have early voting for federal elections, and allows all voters to request mail-in ballots, request them. It bolsters election security on voting systems, and it overhauls the redistricting process to safeguard against partisan takeovers of elections. So that's a a very big uh, uh, measure. Uh, Mayor Davis, I want to go back to you on this, though, because— You know, everybody seems to suggest here it in some ways the people who are going to boycott uh, the president today um, are are they overlooking how important it is to them mobilize to elect legislators in states like Georgia who will, in fact, fight against the kind of changes in state election laws that the president now wants to do something about on a federal level.
2: Bill, I don't think there's any overlooking uh, of how important it is to elect legislators who will serve in the House and the Senate under the goal. Once again, because you do not have preclearance, we just went through this process of redistricting. Political maps have been drawn, and we saw what has taken place from that perspective. Instead of having independent commissions drawing maps uh, and making sure that there's one man, one vote, uh, and create an opportunity for all Georgians, What we see is uh, partisanship. Uh, I went through the process back in 2011, just like uh, Ed Lindsey did, and we've seen it. We've been there. We've teed it up before. But the reality of it is uh, those groups that, quote, may be boycotting today, I think there's a level of angst, rightly so, uh, because we've seen a lack of activity on this. But more importantly, it needs to be directed at those federal uh, elected officials. And when you think about that, I go back to – uh again the majority leader the majority whip uh and more importantly you know bring it to the floor call the vote call the folks out uh this i'm more concerned about the democrats who are couching and who do not want to move this forward than i am about the republicans uh i mean that's the reality of where we are right now uh this is a hotly partisan issue yes on one hand but at the same time this is this has historical implications Uh, The president's role is, again, to amplify the message about how important it is for the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Bill to move forward. Uh, But it's those members of Congress whose responsibility is to get it done. Uh, But the partisanship under the Gold Dome, uh, in terms of drawing maps, uh, you're going to see fewer uh, folks, uh, whether they be Democrat or Republican. I mean, you saw that in the congressional maps. Uh, you got Lucy McBath and uh, Carolyn Bordeaux, who will now Go toe-to-toe uh because of this process and the key piece is there's no longer any pre-clearance mm. i'd like to pivot back real
3: briefly to the folks that are boycotting i'm not so much interested in the groups that are boycotting but i am fascinated with the strategy uh, that Stacey abrams is undergoing in uh, in aborting this i recall back in 2014 mm. when president obama came to georgia Uh, for an event, suddenly uh, the two Democratic uh, nominees for governor and for U.S. Senator, uh, Jason Carter and Michelle Nunn, suddenly found themselves at the other end of the state. Uh, I'm not so sure if that's a a wise strategy when a a unified party is so critically important in an election year and also in pulling in independents and and more moderate voters. Uh, A lot of folks saw that as an affront to, to, to President Obama in that it did sort of cut into uh, the democratic unity at that time. So I'm I'm just sort of curious as to the wisdom of Stacey Abrams uh, stepping away from uh, President Biden, who does still command a lot of support from independents and moderates, and whether or not they feel uh, that this is an affront to, to a president that they voted for, and whether or not they'll have a second thought about voting for uh, Stacey Abrams. So that's a going to be a curious question for us to see down the road.
0: I I thought of something similar, Edward, as well. Um, You know, and it's hard leading up to midterm elections. And look, Stacey Abrams might truly have a a conflict. We don't know what she's up to today, and it's very possible she had something she couldn't move. But it's hard to not read into it. Um, And this comes at a time when Joe Biden has super low approval ratings, and it seems like he might be dragging down the Democratic ticket leading into 2022. In my home state of Virginia, you saw the drag that uh, Joe Biden had on, um, uh, the gubernatorial race last fall. And so, uh, that, that might be something that's on the mind of her team. And of course, Stacey Abrams has really made a name for herself as a voting rights advocate over the last five years. And so, um, you know, she has affiliations with some of these groups that are boycotting, um, you know, today's event, the, the PAC associated with, associated with the new Georgia project, which she helped started is one of the groups that's, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's boycotting this. So of course she can't anger those, those activists who she relies on so much, who she helps, uh, you know, who she's very much allied with. But of course, she also can't anger the president and and more mainstream Democrats who, um, you know, want to to work with the president to get this done. So it's a tough move. You, you know, she's trying to thread that needle. She tweeted, um, you know, that she was grateful for the president and vice president for coming down. And so she's definitely kind of towing that line there. Uh, and it, it's a tough role, especially given that this issue is her bread and butter.
1: Um, Amy, uh, we know that over and over again, uh, many Democrats have said that what's inspired uh, state election laws passed since the 2020 election, like Georgia has done, is the big lie told by Donald Trump that he actually won the election. Um, And now uh, Mitch McConnell and, and his office are using the big lie themselves against Democrats. They put out a memo over the weekend in which they said that Democrats will, quote, try to use fake hysteria to break the Senate's, Senate and silence millions of Americans' voices so they can take over elections and ram through their radical agenda. And one more sentence, Leader McConnell and Senate Republicans have repeatedly stood up to the left and their big lie that there is some evil anti-voting conspiracy sweeping America. It's interesting, Amy, that was a Trump tactic for so long, taking the words uh, uh, f- thrown at him and turning them against his opponents.
4: Yes, um, because objectively speaking, many of the laws that have been passed in states, especially after the 2020 election, have in fact... Um, sort of gone backwards in the sense of access to voting and ease of voting. Um, Georgia, somewhat ironically, actually, had had a model, uh, was one of the first in the nation to uh, expand uh, absentee voting, um, expand uh, the number of sort of early voting hours, the use of drop boxes. And that was actually seen as sort of a national model to kind of increase access. And it's gone back. And I think What is interesting there is sort of this question of – let me start – actually, one of the things that was really fascinating is how many foreign reporters have come and said to me, don't we want people to vote? In fact, explain to me why in the United States it's not mandatory, because in so many other countries across the globe, it is. This idea that somehow we would be sort of fighting over access is really foreign – to a lot of people. And so it sort of shifts where that conversation is and almost shifts how you think about it. And being asked that question really was sort of illuminating, honestly, to try to think through what that means and where that goes in. And I think it really shows where we are at the moment, um, politically polarized, That somehow access to the voting booth, in fact, has become a partisan issue rather than one that we just simply all agree on. And we'll have to see where that takes us.
1: All right, Amy Steigerwald gets the last word in this segment of Political Rewind. we got a lot more to talk about, and we'll continue after these messages. Augusta Mayer, Hardy Davis, uh, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Amy Steigerwald, Georgia State University political science professor, Edward Lindsay, uh former state legislator from... Atlanta are with me on the show today. Mayor Davis, I'd love to get your thoughts on a couple of measures that uh, we now know Governor Kemp is going to push during the uh, session, which has begun. Number one, he's already announced that he is for uh, a bill that will allow for so-called constitutional carry, the ability to... Uh, carry a gun, either a concealed weapon or open openly uh, without a permit. And he added a layer to that in terms of this plank of so-called public safety measures he's concerned about. He wants to form a, a, a gang crimes unit under the control of the attorney general's office, a state gang crimes unit. And I'm wondering, as, as a mayor of a major city in Georgia and one who has unfortunately seen some violence, bi- I mean, over The weekend, I think there were five people shot to death in Richmond County. I wonder what you make of uh, these uh, kind of seemingly contradictory elements of pushing public safety and also expanding uh, the rights of people to carry guns.
2: Well, first and foremost, I mean, this is a political move. Uh, Governor Kemp, uh, who has done a really good job leading the great state of Georgia, uh, this is about politics, this is about making sure that he's able to draw his base out uh, as opposed to David Perdue, that's first and foremost. Uh, my feelings about it as a person who has a permit and is a carrier, uh, I'm, I'm a bit torn. Uh, we've talked about background checks and the need to make sure that we keep guns out of the hands of bad actors. Uh, I think more needs to be discussed about it, I'm looking forward to any proposed legislation, So. I don't want to speak broadly about it, uh, particularly as a person who carries, but it is somewhat duplicitous, especially when you talk about the uh, gang task force. Um, I don't see that as necessarily a new thing. I think the governor has been leading in this conversation for a number of years now. Uh, Both he and uh, AG Chris Carr, uh, they worked aggressively Uh, just last year. uh, We had a major bust in Richmond County. Uh, The governor came down and uh, was there with uh, my sheriff and a host of us, uh, along with uh, DEA and other agencies to include the GBI. So we know that there is uh, a continuing issue around gang problems across the state of Georgia, not just in Augusta. Uh, Criminals are going to commit crimes. What I'm cautious about, particularly with regards to this notion of constitutional carry, is is how it's so easy to get on the wrong side of the law. Uh, When I think about particularly people of color uh, who uh, carry those of us who are actually uh, permitted carriers, Uh, and the challenges around uh, if you have a weapon in your vehicle, you get stopped, and the associated concerns about that. There's a lot that needs to be discussed uh, to have a blanket order of, you know, you don't need a permit. I think I heard uh, the governor's press statement around that. Why do you need a government piece of paper to carry? a uh, firearm in the state of Georgia. We need to focus really on other issues like reciprocity across states. Uh, that'd be a bigger issue in my mind that we need to focus on. Whether I drove, whether I was able to carry from here to uh, South Carolina, or if I was in New Jersey and the laws there are different than what they are in New York and so forth. So uh, I'm a bit cautious at this point, um, and I look forward to robust debate about it.
1: Edward.
3: Well, you know, gun debates and, and Hardy and I were, were part of a lot of those uh, during our, our respective tenure uh, often get uh, extremely complicated. And we'll just have to see what the final product looks like uh, in terms of uh, what is and is not permitted. Uh, there has been a problem in the past with some counties uh, making it somewhat difficult to get a permit. Uh, there's a slowdown in the process, and perhaps the better route in the end would be to simply uh, make sure that all the counties are, do- are following the law and are uh, taking care of the uh, applications for a permit in a timely manner. Because I think a lot of the pressure for this uh, constitutional carry is borne by folks who are frustrated uh, with the timeliness of, of the applications. So we'll have to see. But there are a lot of things that go in uh, to uh, making sure that we have gun safety here in the state. I uh, mentioned one of them when it came to uh, adequate background checks when it comes to the purchase of, of guns in any kind of setting. Uh, and also making sure that folks who are permitted to carry uh, do so responsibly. Uh, if I may sort of do my plug for something that I couldn't get past, that's the believe was very important when I was in the session, that technically we don't have a law against you carrying while intoxicated. (laughs) Uh, There is a law against you uh, firing the gun while you're intoxicated, but there's no law against you carrying the gun while intoxicated. And uh, and I've always believed that those are two things that simply don't mix alcohol and guns. And uh, a lot of the problems that we see when it comes to Random acts of violence, particularly between people who know each other, usually there's that mix of alcohol in there, and so perhaps uh, in any kind of gun law that gets pushed through, I certainly hope they start taking those sort of things
1: seriously. Okay, so Tamar and then Amy, I, I want to further, uh, I want to take this a little bit further and go back to what I started with here. Uh, on one hand, uh, you have members of the General Assembly, Republicans who are so concerned about gun violence in the city of in Buckhead uh, and and the kind of wild west uh, of uh, guns out of control in Buckhead saying we need to create a new city to be able to deal with that violence. And on the other hand, you perhaps are going to support a measure which will allow for the proliferation of even more guns now. You know, I understand both Hardy Davis and Edward Lindsay talking about the right to carry a weapon. But do we – the question that opponents are going to be asking over and over while this debate goes on is, do we really need a a, a law that will potentially put more guns in the hands of people in the state of Georgia? Tamar and then Amy.
0: I mean, you've got to think about issues that are going to motivate your Republican base. And I would kind of put things into two categories. There's kind of the the bedrock principles that your your base will always talk about that are extremely important. And I would put a, abortion and Second Amendment there. Um, there's a proliferation of, of groups nationally and especially in Georgia that don't want any sort of restrictions when it comes to or, or minimal restrictions when it comes to owning firearms. And it's all about kind of peeling away a lot of the bureaucracy around that. And I think that's such a top issue. of concern, And that's why you're seeing the governor and and David Perdue in this primary really kind of try and outflank each other on an issue like that. You also have kind of shorter term political issues that will motivate your base. And that's where you get crime in Buckhead. That's where you talk about Atlanta versus the rest of the state. So I think there's a little bit of opportunism. You know, why not take this opportunity to crap on the city of Atlanta and its leadership for this this crime wave that's kind of sweeping many American cities, many parts of the state. But then there's that Bedrock where your voters in a primary are always going to want to, to kind of peel away any sort of regulations when it comes to guns.
4: Um, and I think that we also have to be cognizant, and the mayor alluded to this a little bit, of the way that those two sort of seemingly contradictory policies can fit together. It's the question of who's actually allowed to have the gun and what is it we're saying. The movement for Uh, carry without a permit is for the Republican-based voters, right? Mm -hmm. It's for those that are sort of thought to be worthy of having a gun. On the other hand, when we sort of talk about gangs, we talk about sort of crime in the city. It is a uh, reflection of a view that there is another group of people. Unfortunately, generally speaking, those who live in cities are much more likely to be uh, people of color that are not allowed to own the guns. And we see that with uh, differing reactions, right, to uh, uh, Flanda Castle, I think it was his, Castillo, that, you know, he was a gun owner, had a permit, and that we did not see the sort of same outcry when uh, the police shot him, even though he legally had his gun, in part because he was Black. And I think we've got to be somewhat cognizant of that and— it does unfortunately go together that we're sort of struggling with this idea. And they, because the problem is, is it is hard to square them, right? If we say that you're allowed to carry a gun, then you can't say it's suspicious that somebody's carrying a gun. And it certainly can't be that it's suspicious because they're carrying the gun in Atlanta, as opposed to not being suspicious if they're carrying the gun in Marietta or Americus yeah. or Albany.
1: Yeah, which is basically what Mayor, also... Mayor Davis was saying. Yeah, go ahead, Mayor Davis. Let me throw this out there as
2: well. I think, you know, when you look at the, at the state of Georgia's strides for with uh, staying your ground laws and what took place in 2021, uh, this could be a huge step backwards. Uh, I think it has the p- potential of backfiring and not having the effect from a political standpoint that uh, uh, our Republican friends want. And, and I would just caution. There's a cautionary Philando Castile. There are a host of others, a cautionary tales and you know, again, I know this is campaign season, 2022, uh, but if we want the best Georgia, one Georgia that I consistently keep hearing about, uh, then we've got to we've got to slow walk this one, and uh, you know, again, be very thoughtful about what this legislation could and should look like.
1: Edward Lindsay, before we have to take our final break, one more note about uh, uh, guns in Georgia. Uh, It's good for business. Uh, Christopher Quinn reported (laughs) in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Well, it's interesting, Edward. Uh, We made a lot, obviously, on this show, the governor, other state leaders about the Rivian uh, uh, plant coming to Georgia, which is going to produce thousands of jobs. But Christopher Quinn in the AJC the other day uh, wrote a story that pointed this out. The state of Georgia is now home to 74 companies that make hunting rifles, shotguns, pistols, semi-automatic military-style rifles, parts, accessories, and ammunition. That's according to the Department of Economic Development. And he goes on to say this. It didn't happen by accident, Edward. The state's business recruiters began aggressively courting gun makers six years ago after noticing a trend. Firearms manufacturers were fleeing the Northeast, where some states have passed more stringent gun laws, and they're relocating to politically fl- friendlier southern climes. Edward?
3: And they bring with them good jobs uh, that, that pay well for their uh, employees. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of anybody who comes and, uh, and abides by our laws and sells a product that is legal. And, you know, so and that's another issue. So glad to have them uh, and look forward to a robust debate, as Hardy was mentioning, on what kind of gun laws do and do not work uh, to uh, to make
1: folks safe. OK, let's get to our final <laughs> break of the show. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening to Political Rewind. Tamar Hellerman, uh, Speaker David Ralston uh, the other day uh, said that he thinks it may be time for the legislature to give Georgia voters the right to decide whether they want to allow to expansion of legal gambling in the state. Uh, He says they won't at this point. The first step is for them to say, yeah, we'd like to see it expanded. Then the legislature would take up the question of whether it becomes casinos, sports betting or uh, the like. Uh, So Tamar Uh, Give us a little uh, about that uh, from your point of view.
0: Sure. I mean, this is an issue that the legislature has been talking about for many years, and there there hasn't been a ton of movement yet. Um, so, under the proposal that that Ralston is pushing, there'd be a referendum to ask voters about whether they'd want to increase gambling in Georgia. But it wouldn't define what kind of betting would be allowed. The General Assembly would come in later and decide whether they want to do what they call destination resorts, which are casinos. Whether we're talking about sports betting or horse racing or or that sort of thing, um, and. What's interesting is what we're now hearing from Governor Kemp, who's against the concept of it, but he said if voters approve it and if two-thirds of the legislature approves it, then that's something that he'd be willing or, you know, that that would go into law because it doesn't need his signature. So uh, it's an interesting move. We've seen a ton of other states, um, including some of our neighbors, um, approve it in recent years. So I think a lot of proponents are saying there's money being left on the table and why not go for it. So it'll be interesting to see whether it can uh, pull through this year.
1: You know, Hardy Davis, I, I can't help but think of this in a historical context. Um, I remember quite well when Governor Zell Miller, uh, a Democrat, of course, uh, decided that he was going to make uh, the lottery with funds uh, earmarked for education, hope scholarship and the like, his top Issue And when the legislature went to vote before your time, yours and Edward, Edward Lindsay's time at the state capitol, when they went to vote on it, um, religious groups, conservative religious groups pushed back hard and Zell Miller. Uh, found it himself in a kind of a bind when it came time for re-election to win any of those votes over. Now it's interesting, Mayor Davis, it's Republicans who are suggesting maybe it's time to expand gambling in Georgia.
2: Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, this is a longstanding debate. Uh, it was a, a debate when Ed and I were there in the House and in the Senate. You know, we've gone from horse racing to casino gaming to now this notion of legalized gaming. Uh, I think that's much m- much different from the standpoint of it's primarily being driven by the sports teams in the Atlanta area in terms of what ultimately the legislation might look like. Uh, I would, again, defer back to the citizens of Georgia and simply put it on the ballot and say, uh, will, you, w- will you support casino gaming in Georgia? Uh, whatever that looks like. And just put it on the ballot and let the people decide. Uh, you know, stop the politics and the calcium and all of this countering. Uh, work out the details once you've got support from the citizens of Georgia uh, as to whether they will support casino gaming or not. Um, I'm not so sure about this legalized, you know, sports betting and all of that. But uh, again, I, I think it's a worthy conversation to have. I just put it on the ballot. Well, the fact
3: of the matter is, it's not a question of if Georgia will ever have uh, this sort of uh, gaming uh, laws uh, in Georgia, uh, but when it takes place. Uh, it is a somewhat of a high hurdle and that it takes two-thirds. I think how the Speaker's doing it is right, uh, because what he's simply doing, okay, this year we'll simply let the voters decide whether we'll permit it, and next year uh, after the 22 uh, election we'll then uh, decide what exactly it'll, it will look like and how the money that is, revenue rather, that is being raised will be dispersed. Uh, that will hopefully uh, take care of some people's uh, concerns who want to sort of debate as to how the money will be utilized, which comedy casinos will be permitted, whether or not and what kind of gambling will be allowed to take place. So this was a smart political move by the Speaker in terms of just saying, OK, voters, let's just say, uh, let us know whether not we can do this or not. And then we can work out the details later. And that's probably the best way that you're going to get it passed this year. And and with the speaker's backing, uh, it, it has a fair shot.
0: Those issues, Bill, you were talking about Zell Miller and kind of all the pushback that he got from le- religious conservatives back back in the day. And I think there's there's been a real kind of cultural shift uh, over these last few decades. You know, I remember growing up, no alcohol being sold on Sundays. That's the Lord's Day. And you've seen so many kind of changes mm-hmm. on that. You're seeing a lot of changes when it comes to gambling. And I—, I can't help but wonder if kind of the next issue down the pipeline is is selling marijuana which so many states are starting to do and especially when there is a way for the state to get on board for people to start making money off it it just kind of goes to prove that for a lot of states that's just too tempting to reject and so i wonder at least for my generation if that's kind of the similar fight that we're going to be having in the years to come I had exactly the same thought as Tamar, and I think with a lot of it, I mean, the
4: arguments that we see in other states that have adopted it are if we – right? People are doing it no matter what, and if we legalize it, we get the tax revenue, and the tax revenue goes into the state coffers, and then we can use it for things that our people need. And otherwise, basically what we're doing is – allowing that money to sit on the table. And it's not something that we're really going to be able to enforce. Right. The, a lot of it's going on online, but at least this way we can sort of take advantage of it. Um, and that's another revenue stream, especially as things get increasingly expensive in the state. I mean, we our, our state has a lot of areas that we still need to make up. We've had to do some really severe budget cuts and that needs to be still filled back in, um, you know, of course, seeking as a, you know, Employee public universities. Uh, we have a lot of holes that we would really like to fill back in. Uh, and, hey, if this is what will do it, then I'm all for it. All
1: right. Uh, before we leave today, uh, talking about money, Edward Lindsay, uh, the, the most recent reporting period for candidates from the 2022 ballots are is coming up. And uh, we now know that between July 1st and January 9th, the Kemp campaign raised more than $7 million, and they are going to report that they have $12 million in their campaign account, uh, which he'll be uh, making great use of as he fights his primary battle against David Purdue. I, that race is going to, given that Trump is uh, supporting Purdue, and he's going to be able to raise a lot of money. the The amount of money being raised in Republican circles is going to be astonishing for that contest, Edward.
3: Well, how many of us remember? Uh, we're all political junkies, even probably all do. Back in two thousand two, when we thought when Roy Barnes raised twenty million dollars, just how astronomical <laughs> that was, and and how that was a figure that, 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 that we've never seen before, and we doubt and perhaps that we'd ever see it again. And that sounds so quaint now. Or uh, <laughs> when you consider how much is going to be poured into this state uh, on both sides of the political aisle, uh, not just in this, what will be, you're quite right, a very expensive primary fight between, and probably a very expensive runoff primary fight uh, between Purdue and, and Kemp. And then and, and equally, if not even more expensive, uh, fight in November when whoever gets the nomination from the Republican side faces Stacey Abrams. So uh, we're talking about uh, easily well beyond seven, eight, nine, and maybe even a billion dollars before we're all over with. Oh my uh, God. That's just, oh my that's... And, that's just, and that's just amazing to even oh.
1: consider. Uh, You just took my breath away, uh, which, by the way, will be the last thing will happen on today's show. Uh, Edward Lindsay, Augusta Mayor Hardy Davis, Amy Steigerwald, Tamar Hallerman, thank you for a terrific conversation. Uh, We've now seen some excerpts from the remarks that uh, President Biden's going to make today. Among other things, he's going to say, I will defend your right to vote and our democracy against all enemies, foreign and domestic. The question is, where will the institution of the United States Senate uh, stand. Uh, Riley Bunch for GPB News will be with President Biden today. She'll report on his visit and all things considered later uh, today. We're out of time. Again, my thanks to Tamar, to Edward Lindsay, to Hardy Davis, and Amy Steigerwald, and of course to my team, uh, Natalie Mendenhall, Sam Bermastaws, Jesse Neiswanger. I Always am grateful for the work you do on this show. We'll be back again with a brand new Political Rewind tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. Avoid Omicron at all costs. Wear a mask and get that booster shot if you haven't got it already. Take care, everybody.